I invite your attention this morning to the book of Romans. Turn with me, please, if you will, to the book of Romans, the first letter in your Bibles following the Gospels and history, Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. You may be wondering why it is that we're beginning today a sermon series from Romans, and I want you to know that there are some very specific reasons for going to this book after having recently spent two years in uh, Genesis, and almost a year before that, uh, a decade ago, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, there is a connection. Uh, Paul draws much in his letter to the Romans from the book of Genesis, and so it occurred to me that the that while the history of Genesis is still fresh on our minds, we might benefit immediately from hearing Paul's own application of that history we've just been studying. There is another reason uh, for going to the book of Romans at this time, and that is that there is currently some uh, shifting of thought in the contemporary church, and more particularly of concern to us in parts of the Reformed Church, of which we are a part. Uh, Some of our doctrines are coming under scrutiny at the moment, and they happen to be some of our most central doctrines, uh, doctrines surrounding and touching on justification, which is, uh, by the way, at least in part, a reason that we used our uh, catechism question this morning as a confession of faith. There is, of course, no crime in re-examining our doctrines, and in fact, we ought always to be willing to ask again and again, have we got it right? But uh, we must also be sure that uh, when we have the answer to that question, that that answer is in line with the Bible. So here we set our anchor, dear flock, on the word of God. There is another reason, too, but I'll wait till the end to give that to you, but to the book of Romans we'll go in a little while uh, after a few more introductory comments, but first to prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you will teach us, as you do, from your word, that you will apply your truth to us, and that the perfect gospel will come to us from your word in all of its purity and power and strength to accomplish what you have set out to accomplish with your word. We thank you for your own promise that your word will not return to you void, but will always accomplish the purpose for which you set out. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I will tell you that it was after no small struggle with myself that I decided to take a certain approach with you this morning in doing what we'll call a summary of the book of Romans. You know that the typical way I have preached to you has been passage by passage, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. And indeed, we could have simply launched this morning into the first couple of verses uh, of Romans and been content to take that approach. In other words, we could have simply started at the edge of the woods and come to the first tree the first passage in Romans and study the bark and leaves of that tree. But uh, since we're going to be spending, Lord willing, many months together going from tree to tree, one after another in the forest of Romans, I thought we should take a look first at the, the larger woods, the larger forest. And I was glad then to uh, 
to find that the great radio preacher from years ago, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, agrees. Quote, a man who has just purchased a farm has the opportunity of flying over it to get a view of its contours from the air. He sees the overall picture of fields and woods and farm buildings. After this, he begins to work on the farm. And year after year, he goes from field to field, plowing, disking, harrowing, fertilizing, planting, cultivating, harvesting. As time goes on, he learns to know that farm as well as he knows the curves of his child's cheek. He will remember a thousand details that he learned while going about his family, uh, about his daily farm work. He will know the soft spots that he must uh, not plow too early in the spring, lest the tractor bog down. He will know the heavy clay point where his plowshare was torn from the ground. He will know the wood lot in the orchard, the copse where the pheasants hide, and all the other things that go up to make the pleasant life of the good earth. This morning we're going to take that flyover approach. And I want to begin by saying that if there is any theme that might be used to summarize the book of Romans, any thought that seems to dominate this letter... It must be this, justification, justification. You might also say it this way, righteousness by faith. But that is really tantamount to saying the same thing, justification. The central question of Romans, and indeed all of history, is this. How is a person made right with God? How is a person made right with God? The other questions to which the book of Romans supplies the answers uh, either build up to that question or flow from it. They build up to the question with questions like this. Why do we need to be made right with God? Or why must we be justified? And then flowing from that question now, Now that we are made right with God, now that we are justified, how must we then live? But the beating heart of Romans is justification. And the blood that courses through the veins of this letter is righteousness. The righteousness of God that is received by faith. Now, it's no mere coincidence that in looking back over the history of the church, where you find real reformation and revival, you find the book of Romans. The Swiss commentator Godet pointed out that every movement of revival in the history of the Christian church has been connected with the teachings set forth in Romans. He writes this, The Reformation was certainly the work of the epistle to the Romans and that to the Galatians. And it is probable that every great spiritual renovation in the church will always be linked both in cause and in effect to a deeper knowledge of this book. 
was Godet right? Well, if you look back over the history yourself, you will certainly see, see a common theme. It has been said that John, the golden-mouthed preacher Chrysostom, an ancient church father, had this letter read to him twice a week. Augustine, in whose debt you and I and the entire church must be forever held, and on whose shoulders, in many ways, John Calvin himself stood later, I say, Augustine was himself converted through the instrument of this book of Romans. And it was in the defense of these doctrines in Romans that Augustine made his greatest contribution to the life of the church and an enormous contribution that was indeed. The great reformer Martin Luther was transformed by this book. As a monk in Germany, Luther worked exceedingly hard to please God by his works. But rather than sensing God's pleasure, he sensed only God's condemnation. The righteousness of God hung over Martin Luther's head like a terrible storm poised to strike him down. He wanted to please God, but the harder Luther worked, the further away he seemed. He wanted to be right with God. He wanted salvation to know that he had a right relationship with God. But his own paltry works, mixed with his own ill motives, along with his sins, continued to condemn him. He knew that he should love God, but more and more, Luther says, he grew to hate him. He hated God. He hated God's standard of righteousness, which Luther found utterly unattainable. In desperation, he turns to Romans, where he finds the answer. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, it was not his, it was not Martin Luther's righteousness that would make him right with God. It was, and it still is, dear flock, God's righteousness made yours by faith that makes you right with God. By faith, which simply means taking God at his word. That is the instrument by which God gives righteousness as a free gift to any who will receive it. Here is Luther. I had no love for that holy and just God who punishes sinners. I was filled with secret anger against him. I hated him because not content with frightening by the law and the miseries of life, us wretched sinners already ruined by original sin, he still further increased our tortures with the gospel. But when by the Spirit of God I understood the words, 
When I learned how the justification of a sinner proceeds from the free mercy of our Lord through faith. Then I felt born again like a new man. In very truth, the language of St. Paul was to me a true gate to paradise. Luther called Romans the chief part of the New Testament and the very perfect gospel. He believed that every Christian should know it word for word by heart and occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of his soul to which we might respond to Luther. Yavel. We could go on and on to talk about how this letter to Romans has really been the instrument of turning not only individual lives, but entire cultures upside down. We could go to Bunyan and Wesley and Calvin and Spurgeon. But I did promise that we would take an aerial survey, if you will, of, of the book of Romans, and that we will, remembering that the central, the central doctrine of the book of Romans is justification. That is how a person is made right with God. And in light of that, I've divided the book into six main sections for our purposes this morning. So let's take flight over the forest or the farm, if you will, of, of Romans. And you'll see, first of all, Paul's greeting to the justified in chapter 1. Or to be more precise, in the first 17, chapter, uh, 17 verses of chapter 1. Somehow a church has been planted in Rome. We don't know exactly how. Uh, we can easily imagine that someone who had been in Palestine at the time of Pentecost went back west with the gospel and brought it with them there when they returned home. But uh, at any rate, it is clear that Paul is writing to people whom he considers already to be justified Christians. They are, verse 7 of chapter 1, loved by God and called to be saints. That is what justification accomplishes. Being justified, being made right with God, that is to say being declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ that is given to a man or woman or boy or girl as a free gift. I say that is the way that one enters into a loving relationship with God. All others who are unjustified remain God's enemies. And so outside of his love. But justified people are loved by God. And justified people are saints. The scripture calls them, calls us, in the truest sense of that word. Saints, which means holy ones, or set apart ones. Again, because of the holiness of God, the righteousness of Christ that is made theirs and by which they are declared holy in God's sight. They are saints. Paul's writing to the justified, and here's the interesting thing. He wants to come, verse 15, he wants to come to them to preach the gospel to them. Now, why does Paul 
want to preach the gospel to them. Why do they need to hear the good news of salvation? Haven't they already heard it? Well, evidently so. They're already justified. But, and here we may draw our very first application from the epistle to the Romans, even Christians need to hear the gospel. Even Christians need to hear the gospel. We never stop needing to hear the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Evidently, the gospel, as it turns out, is not only for unbelievers. It is also for believers and should be a regular part of our diet as well. I will admit to you, frankly, that it is sometimes tempting for a pastor to want something new, something that will dazzle you, something that will impress you anew, something different to preach. It seems to me like I've been preaching the same thing to you for 13 years. As we enter into the book of Romans, I anticipate that there are very few of you here who will hear something that you haven't heard before. As we enter into the book of Romans, we'll be constantly hearing the same fundamental things, the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. Why do we need to hear it again and again? Well, quite simply, we are prone to forgetting the plain gospel and thereby straying from the truth. I know that it is true for me, so I imagine it may well be true for you, that we need to be reminded of things as basic as the fundamental foundation of our salvation. This, too, needs to be a part of the Christian's diet. You need to continue to eat your greens. It's true today as it was when you were a child in order to stay healthy. So a Christian needs a steady nourishment of the gospel. So Paul goes on to remind them, second, of the need to be justified. And, and that need is evident, perfectly evident for Paul. Basically, fundamentally, all Men are sinful. All men are sinners. He makes no bones about it. He launches right into it in verse 18 of chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, who are those men? Paul goes on 3 verse 23 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Some people, maybe even some people in this room today, think themselves better than that. You ask most anyone on the street and, and they will say, I, I may be bad sometimes, but I'm not all that bad. She will take comfort in saying to you, well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so is. They're really sinful. 
those people. I hear it all the time. And so have many of you. In fact, you've heard folk go ahead and pass judgment freely on others too. What a terrible thing so-and-so did the other day. Did you hear what that person did? But Paul has an answer for that too. In chapter 2, verse 1, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. The fact of the matter is, every one of us have sinned, heinously sinned, against God. We've broken his law at one point, so says James, and so we've broken it at every point. Oh, you may have never physically cheated on your spouse, and that is good. But Jesus says that a lustful look amounts to adultery. You haven't killed anyone, you say, haven't you? Jesus says that anyone who holds anger against his brother is liable to judgment. Ah, but the Jew, see, he's got, he's got a, an objection to, to place with Paul. He says, I have the law. I'm, I'm circumcised, Paul. And Paul says, yes, you are. And it makes you more guilty because you've broken that law. <laughs> and then the Gentile comes and says, well, I don't have the law. How could I be held guilty? Ah, says Paul, you had creation. You had the witness of creation in chapter 1. And the law written on your hearts, he says in chapter 2. There is none who is righteous. No, not one. In some, chapter 2, verse 12, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are justified. Now, because none of us has kept the law of God, no one will be justified that way. Not even you. And that's the bad news. You need, desperately need, righteousness before God. But you can't get it. Not by the law. Not by your works. You need to be justified. And here's the good news. Which brings me to the third point. Paul goes on to tell us the means to be justified. The law condemns us, condemns every single one of us. For none of us has kept it. Not for one day, not for one minute. But Paul starts in chapter 3, verse 21. That wonderful word, that word that so often precedes a marvelous word of grace in Paul. But, but now 
the righteousness of God has been manifested. Here's the good news. Apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who believe. Here's the dilemma. You are unrighteous. Christ is righteous. You need his righteousness. You need for his righteousness to become your righteousness. Which is exactly what happens when he justifies you. Your sins, your unrighteousness placed on Christ on the cross. Christ's righteousness placed on you in your account. The sinless one becomes sin for us. And his righteousness becomes ours. At what cost to you? Surely there must be a cost. There has got to be a string to this. You know the line. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Don't give that to me. You, you don't get anything for nothing in this world. But this is free. This is absolutely free. Six times Paul will repeat this phrase, free gift, free gift, free gift, free gift. For the wages of sin is death, he writes in chapter 6, verse 23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is free to you. It is free. You don't believe it. You're still holding out. You're still convinced that it must be by your works. Somehow, some way, you've just got to accomplish your own justification or at least contribute something to it. A little something, maybe. So Paul argues the case and he calls to the stand two witnesses. Pretty impressive witnesses at that. First Abraham in chapter 4 and then David. Romans 4 verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. There it is. Justification by faith, not by works. 
unless you should still not understand, Paul spells it out, picking up in verse 4 now of chapter 4. Now to the one who works, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, he earned them. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now the second witness, David, what does he say? He speaks from experience in verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And blessed are you, every one of you here, who can say it confidently with him. I tell you, and every real Christian in this room will tell you too, there is no blessing in all the world like this one to know that your sins are covered and that they will never ever be counted against you again and there is one way one way to receive that free gift and it is so simple that men have missed it, they've stumbled over it, they've refused it more often than we care to imagine. Don't you miss it. It is simply by trusting in Jesus Christ to save you by his righteousness made yours and your sins made his to take your sins away. Now we've lingered long on the first side of this tour of Romans. I don't regret it because the rest is, in a certain sense, downhill. From here to the end of Romans, we have what flows from justification. Fourth, we have the transformation of the justified in chapters 6 through 8. No longer slaves to sin, now we are slaves to righteousness. Does that make it easy? Is life easy for the justified now? Will sin just sort of go away and disappear? Well, no. And even the mighty Apostle Paul will groan at the end of chapter 7. What a wretched man I am. And we'll confess with the words we used to confess this morning. What I would do, I don't do. And that which I would not do, that I do. But even our sin, our hated enemy, only sends us to our Savior again to say, Praise God, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And again, at the end of that great chapter, this confidence, there is nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. As Martin Luther put it somewhere, nothing is not a little something. Nothing is nothing. 
can separate us from the love of God. We who have been justified will just as surely be glorified by the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. He will make it so. Now there may still remain Still, some doubts in the minds of Paul's hearers, because they're painfully aware of this. The Jews were God's chosen people. Now, for the most part, they've been rejected. Could it be, could it just possibly be that justification can, after all, be lost? No way. Paul goes on to explain, fifth, the history of the justified in chapters 9 through 11. It boils down to this. As many in Israel, as God chose from Israel, will never be lost. And as many of the Gentiles as God savingly calls to himself, will also be justified. Now, as many as seek to be justified by the law, by their works, whether they're Jews or or Gentiles, they're going to be judged by the law. That was the standard they wanted. But, in chapter 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of of the Lord will be saved. And for those who are saved, for those who are justified, then there is a life to be lived that that flows out of that justification. So, sixth, the life of the justified is laid out in the last four chapters of Genesis, uh, Romans. I knew I was going to do that sometime this morning (laughs) after two years in Genesis. It is a life of living sacrifice. Paul begins in chapter 12, verse 1. A living sacrifice. He goes on to say and to describe this life of the justified as a life of humility, a life of using one's spiritual gifts for the blessing of others, a life of love it is, a life of trust, a life of submission to the governing authorities that have been instituted by God, a life of following the example of Christ who has justified us by his blood. It is a life that culminates in doxology and praise to God, crying out to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. That, brothers and sisters, is Romans. That's the lay of the land from above. Now, the Lord willing, over the weeks and months to come, we will begin plowing that land, turning it row by row by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And may he bless us richly as we enjoy the things that go to make up the pleasant life of the good earth of God's word. I promised you one more reason for taking up Romans now. And it is quite simply this. Nothing is so perfectly designed for breathing newer life and vitality 
greater joy and blessing, broader love for God and for brethren and even for enemies, and mightier freedom into the life of a congregation and into the life of a Christian than the gospel. The gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in the book of Romans, we have that gospel in spades. Amen.